Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Siobhan O'Neill, who is a history teacher based in Basingstoke in Hampshire. Since graduating from Bangor University in North Wales, where she studied history and film studies, Siobhan has worked in education as a secondary school history teacher and head of history. She created a network for history educators in Basingstoke to be able to share good practice and to learn from different stages of education. Well, she also runs her own history revision channel on YouTube and Instagram called One History Help. Siobhan has Crohn's disease diagnosed when she was 17 and she continues to endeavour to raise awareness of the illness. She's also a keen singer and sings in a gospel choir and, of course, loves books. Siobhan, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Hi, Paul. Thank you so, so much. It's really, really great to meet you. Obviously, I mentioned the fact that you're a history teacher and history is certainly your background. So I was, I was quite intrigued mm. to see the sort of books that <laughs> you're going to be choosing for us today in terms of that mm. context. But has that always been in terms of profession and, and interest history? Has that always been your passion in terms of education? 100%. Absolutely. So I knew I wanted to be a teacher when I was in year three. So that's what, about seven or eight years old. And the thing that made me love it was the way that my teacher at the time taught us about the ancient Greeks. And I was like, oh, my gosh, history is incredible. Um, I also grew up in a household where uh, my father, who's Irish Catholic, very, very patriotic Irishman, talked about history constantly. So my love of history comes from him as well. When I was, again, seven or eight years old, I knew more about Irish history than I did about any other history at all. Like I remember again, talking to one of my school teachers about Sinn Féin and like the origins of where they came from and things like that. And for, you know, an eight-year-old, that wasn't really what they would normally be talking about in terms of that. But, you know, I was very much brought up in a house where we talked about history a lot and we embraced so many different types of history as well. So yeah, it was a kind of a no-brainer really. I always knew, like I said, from that age, I wanted to be a teacher. And then the more and more history I learned, the more passionate I became. And it, again, it just eventually became such a straightforward path for me really. Because it's funny you're, you're saying that about Irish history and certainly when I was growing up in Scotland, probably when we were teenagers and again from west of Scotland of Irish Catholic descent, we would have mm. known more at the time of Irish history than Scottish history. Part of that, however, is because proper Scottish history wasn't really taught in Scottish education, which was a real failing because as you're saying, you, you learn about the ancient Greeks, so that really engages you. But at the same time, you want to learn about your own history and your own culture because that will give you that passion as well. That's something I'm incredibly passionate about as a, as a history educator now is about producing a curriculum in my school specifically where I teach, which is representative of the students that I teach as well. A lot of history teachers across the country at the moment are really invested in this concept of diversity and decolonization in the curriculum, especially with everything that happened last year with the Black Lives Matter movement and everything to do with like the removal of uh, Colston statue as well, is that we're really starting to look at our curriculums and we're starting to think, are we really being representative of what the past was like? And it's really fascinating. You know, I've been in education since 2008 now and looking back on it and then also looking at how historiography and the way that history is understood has developed as well, is that we're starting now to really move more into grassroots level history and we're starting to learn more about you know, what I, I often refer to when I talk with my department and other history educators as like the more shadowy areas of history, the things that are neglected by things like the national curriculum, for instance, which is very homogenous in terms of like white British males. And, and that's essentially it. But I've, I've been teaching this kind of reformed and evolving curriculum now in my school for the past year. And it's just with one particular year group is with our youngest students, because the hope is we can kind of evolve it over the years as well. And it's just so incredible. Like I looked into the background of my school where I work and the second most spoken language in my school after English is Polish. Yet we didn't teach any Polish history, but now we do. And likewise, we also in our school have a large um, Afro-Caribbean community as well. Yet beyond the slave trade and then the civil rights movement of the 60s, 
we didn't teach much black history. And that's, I know, is a really big focus for a lot of teachers around there. But, you know, again, as well, just seeing the faces of these students really light up when you're thinking this is your history. You are part of our community and we want to learn about you as much as you can kind of be able to integrate into our history as well. So it's always taught alongside English history too. So rather than it being seen like as tokenism as such, it's fully integrated into both our history on a local level and also a national level as well. Because I wonder as well if you, you know, you mentioned how you're just a, a wee girl or seven or eight and somebody teaches about ancient Greeks and that, that lights some sort of spark in you. Are you mm. conscious then as a teacher, because I always feel it's been a constant theme in this podcast, particularly when you're talking about your teenage book mm. of how important sometimes a teacher can be are you conscious of the fact that I suppose you not every time you're standing in front of a classroom but you know that you you want to engage them because you never know if like in 10 20 years time somebody else has studied history or is teaching history mm. because of something that you've imparted to them yeah um totally and you know, I think about the history teachers that shaped me as well. And also like the people who didn't teach me history and taught me other subjects as well. And the little bits of them that I take with me as well. And yeah, it's true. And like I said, I've been doing this a while now. And I get students, ex-students contact me to say, I'm going on to do a history degree because of what you taught me and how you inspired me. And that kind of thing means more to me than all of the, you know, like the strings of A stars that kids could get. Because to know that you've they put, really put a thought in someone's mind that makes them think, wow, this is valuable. This is enriching my life and this is worthwhile and I want to know more is just incredible. And you can tell as well, something I'm also really passionate about is women's history and female empowerment as well. And especially with the year group who have just left this year. So I only teach in my school up to year 11, so 16 years old. And so they were doing some of their history work surrounding the ideas of feminism and the development of the feminist movement in the 60s and into the 70s as well. And it was odd. It was the first time in a while I taught it and I could feel like this fire building inside me and really kind of communicating it. And I could see some of the boys were kind of like just staring at their navels and everything and shuffling their feet. But some of the girls came back and said, that was amazing. Like, I had no idea. And I feel so much stronger and so much more empowered now because of that. And it was interesting. I was teaching it around the same time, this idea about the feminism, the 60s and 70s to these 15 and 16 year olds around the same time as uh, the death of Sarah Everard happened earlier this year. And it all just kind of collided and came together. And again, just knowing that there are these things that I would be speaking about, which, yes, some of them might have felt quite uncomfortable about some of the things that I was saying to them. But to think that they could go away and really think about that and digest it on their own terms. And I've always said, you know, if you want to talk about it more, you come back to me. I always happily do that. But yeah, it's, it's why I've kind of become a teacher, really, is that idea of thinking I have got this opportunity here to really influence. And I don't mean that in a kind of power hungry way, but in a kind of enriching way, you know, to be able to really help these students to acknowledge areas of the past, to help them understand who we are today as well. The only thing that, that slightly concerned me with what you've just said in the last five minutes or so, it suddenly struck me how old I am because you're talking about <laughs> teaching history in the 60s and 70s. And I'm thinking, God, I, I was obviously born in the 60s. But <laughs> when I was at school, that would have been modern studies. <laughs> well, do you know what? I mean, there's uh, things coming up on the uh, history curriculum now, which is definitely, definitely into my lifetime for sure. And uh, uh, like, for instance, on some of the new GCSE syllabuses that are available um, you can look at uh, the war on terror and you can look at 9-11 and, uh, you know, the consequence, consequential wars in Iraq and things like that as well. And I have kind of avoided them because I'm like, no, that's not that's not history yet. I'm not, I'm not ready to talk about that. But you know what's really fascinating is that if we think about like the last three or four years that we've been through, I remember especially when Brexit happened. And I remember so many students asking me, do you reckon you'll teach this in school one day? Do you reckon you'll be teaching students about this in the future? So, you know, this idea that in, in the years to come, I will be teaching about Brexit and I will be teaching about the coronavirus pandemic and so on and so forth. And, you know, the presidency of Donald Trump as well. So it's a real surreal feeling to think about just how, more, how increasingly recent history is becoming. And I, I bet you're uh, always a popular member of a quiz team. 
Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because not only am I really, really great with my historical knowledge, I like to think, uh, but I'm also an absolute winner when it comes to a music round as well. And films <laughs> as well. So, yeah, absolutely. So anyone out there, everyone fancies, uh, you know, jenning up on their pub quiz team, just give me a shout and I'll, I'll happily help out. <laughs> as long as there's no maths or science questions I'm or, or, or geography, I'm no good at those. In terms of this podcast, uh, I mentioned obviously you you've mentioned some of the, the passions you've got. Obviously, books are another passion, hence the reason that you're on the podcast. So if I can take you back to your childhood and ask you to choose a favourite book from childhood. And the one that you've yeah. gone for is Roald Dahl's Matilda. And what is it about that book that has stayed with you? When I was picking one from my childhood, uh, it took me back massively and again it was very much you know memories of my father and us spending our Saturdays going to the library every Saturday without fail how he read so many books in a week I have no idea but every week without fail we'd go and I remember getting Matilda as one of the books and just absolutely consuming it I was, I was already aware of uh, Roald Dahl books at this stage I didn't know anything about the story I just know I mean I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for a you know, if I know I've read one and it's good, then I'll read another one. I'm, like, I'm the same with movies. You know, if I've seen, I mean, I love Tom Hanks, for instance. I've seen one Tom Hanks film. I loved it. I'll watch any of them. So I got this one. And eventually, and actually, I was looking in front inside the front cover of it here. And I can, uh, you know, fortunately, I wrote down my name and what year group I was in. So I know roughly about how old I was when I was reading this. And I noticed in the corner, it says 25p. So clearly, I must have picked this up in a charity shop or something like that. When I reflect back, I know that this was always a go-to for me throughout my childhood. Like, I want to read a book, I'll read Matilda. You know, I had other ones as well, but I can see by how weathered this, uh, you know, spine is and, and everything like that, that, you know, I know this was a go-to for me. And just to kind of prepare for today, I, I didn't reread the book, but I, I kind of just had a, a delve into the, the plot again. And it's really fascinating because... Now that I'm looking back all these many years later from when I was in, what was it to say at the front, year four, so again, about eight years old, roughly, there, I think when I read the plot today, when I was preparing for this, there were things that really stuck out to me as the woman I am today. And I think, oh my gosh, it was like the seeds were being planted back then. But if I think more about when I was a child and actually reading it itself, it was pure escapism. It really was. And I can't think of another author that really captured me like that. And, you know, I obviously later on, as you mentioned before, went on to do uh, my degree as well as history and film studies as well. So, you know, escapism through culture became a really, really big thing to me. But looking back on it now, the things that really stood out to me when I'm thinking about it today, which I know I would have kind of picked up with as a child, is with how much I identified with the character of Matilda. Not from, you know, the background of what her family was like. I, you know, my family were nothing like the Wormwoods or anything like that. And, you know, I had a you know, very, very supportive family growing up and, uh, and everything like that. But it was just her thirst and love of knowledge and learning. I remember, I don't, I don't remember, this is something that's been told to me over the years. When I was at playgroup, so before I went into, into school, uh, I was a real tearaway. Like I was really, really poorly behaved. Like I would, I couldn't sit still. I was always running around every day. I was thumping kids. I was throwing stuff. You know, I would never do as I was told. <laughs> My behavior was so bad that the parents at the nursery complained about me and said, get this child out of this, of this play school, of this nursery. They said, how about we get an educational psychologist to come in and watch and see what the problem is? And that's exactly what they did. My mum, you know, was in bits at this point, thinking, you know, what, what devil spawn have I brought into this world? Because um, I was not like it at home, interestingly. I was only ever like it in playgroup. And so the Ed site watched me for a couple of hours and said to my mum, You're, there is nothing wrong with Siobhan whatsoever. She is bored. That's why she's acting out. And it was true, because as soon as I got to primary school, I stopped. Playgroup was, wasn't intellectually stimulating enough. And again, like I said, I wasn't like it at home. And my mum remembers that at home, I was always nosing a book or doing a puzzle or something like that. I was always occupying myself. And when I read about Matilda and how she was, I mean, she was much, very much amplified version of what I've described myself to be. You know, she's a child prodigy, really. I really wasn't. But, you know, her, want, her desire and, of wanting to know more. I was just like, oh, my gosh, I identify with that. And again, those library trips that I took with my dad. 
you know, yes, I would be picking out novels and things like that, but I'd also be picking out, I remember once picking out um, a book on the basics of French and, you know, trying to upskill in that kind of way. I was always wanting to know more. I always say to the students that I work with as well, I am not someone who is naturally clever. Obviously, at my age now, I come across as very articulate and very knowledgeable, but that is 37 years nearly of hard work and of constant studying to better myself and to want to learn more. And, you know, it was interesting. I said about, you know, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with your daughter. She's just bored. Matilda in the book is way too clever for the year group she's put into, but they won't push her up because, you know, Miss Trunchbull is, you know, not interested in that or anything. And eventually when Miss Trunchbull goes and the new head teacher comes in, she's put right into the top class of the whole, you know, the whole school. I was just like, oh my gosh, I, I identify with that. And again, not because I was super clever, but I wanted to be. I wanted to be pushed. I wanted to be challenged intellectually and have that kind of stimulation. And I think that's what I really identified with her. I mean, her powers of telekinesis are also fab and everything. And, you know, who wouldn't want, you know, a nice little <laughs> superpower to be able to, you know, have up your sleeve as well. But it was that that definitely stuck with me. And now as an educator... I also realized, and again, at the time I was reading this, so again, I was in year four. So at this point, I'd really bought into the idea of, you know, one day becoming a teacher is how much the character of Miss Honey stayed with me and how I'm not going to you know, say she was necessarily a role model or anything like that. But actually, the character of Miss Honey in this book, although recognizes Matilda's ability, she is more there in a caring role for Matilda. And I've talked a lot, you know, in our podcast so far, Paul, about how much I love being an educator for the purpose of knowledge. But I actually also love it because I genuinely care about the people I teach and even the people I don't teach as well. So I mean, maybe the, the students that I care for on a pastoral level. And it really was that idea that this woman, Miss Honey, was looking out for this girl who was just completely neglected by her family. I mean, gosh, social services would have a field day with this, like, you know, nowadays and everything about in terms of the way she's treated. When I look back now, and I really, I remember even at the time feeling very drawn to this character because I had amazing teachers when I was, you know, in year three, year four, and, you know, upwards from there as well. And I generally felt like they cared about me as well. And I was like, gosh, I want to be like that one day. And the teacher that went on to, you know, really inspire me to become an educator wasn't actually someone who taught me she was my uh, form tutor at school and I just remember thinking exactly what I just said there I want to be just like you one day because she cared so much and again I just makes me think so much about that character of Miss Honey. Interesting I hadn't realised that book is Roldal's biggest selling book you know sold more than Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, mm. the Giant Peach etc which I was quite surprised about but one of the things that just struck me from what you said well, two things. One is that, you know, that general idea of that people who read books tend to empathise or be able to empathise more because either they see themselves or like see characteristics they can aspire to or they, they can understand people in different circumstances. So that, that's one aspect of it. The other thing is, and maybe maybe couldn't articulate it when you were eight, but I think what sometimes can give you that lifelong love of books is if as you, you mentioned, you see yourself and a character you can relate to that character she obviously loves books as well and seeing yourself it's, it's why it's important to have you see it now of especially in fiction people from different backgrounds and upbringings and whatever cultures etc reflected in whether it's mm. books or films because that's how you identify and that is so important I totally agree with you. And again, it goes back to what we were talking before about the idea of representation in, yeah, in literature, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. And that's a real increase that I think is happening, especially with children's fiction, is people being able to see themselves in, you know, in a world where previously that hadn't really been the case. But yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think about, you know, books in the future that have really stuck with me and even like TV shows and movies and stuff. It's always been oh, I can really latch onto that. I, I see myself in this person as well. Was there ever any point where you did wish that you had the skill of telekinesis? <laughs> Who wouldn't? Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if I really could choose a superpower, Paul, it would be teleportation to be able to go anywhere in the world. But, you know, telekinesis I'll take as well. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> the other thing, obviously this is just an audio podcast, but you do have your, as you, you mentioned, you do have your, your original mm. copy, which again, I've, I've spoke to other people about this, that, what I think is lovely about that is 
I'm guessing that even just looking it out for this podcast, you're instantly teletransported back to being seven or eight again. Yeah, absolutely. And it was just, you know, like, obviously you can see this a bit better, but like we can see the colour of the pages, you know, they're, they're kind of going to that kind of lightish brownish colour as well. And just looking at the illustrations, I mean, I can't think of Roald Dahl without thinking about Quentin Blake, for instance, and just looking at these images. And there's not too many of them, to be fair. You know, this is quite a text heavy book, but it does. It just totally transports you back there. And, you know, like I said, I've got my year group in, in, the, in the front of the book here. So I must have taken this to school to read as well as reading it at home. Well, if I can take you on then from childhood and onto your yes. kind of teenage formative years and the book that you've chosen as your favourite from that time is Animal Farm by George Orwell. Absolutely. And again, I've got it here. And um, so, do you know what? I, it was interesting when I was trying to choose uh, this second book here. I could really identify with so many books I read in my childhood. But when it came to my teen years, my mind went kind of blank. I know I would have still been reading, but it's really fascinating that I couldn't really latch onto one. But I have I have obviously picked one. And Animal Farm is the book I had to write about in my GCSE English exam. So this isn't a book I went out and chose to read, but it was one that was kind of like kind of put upon me really and this is the again the copy I had for my exam as well that I took in with me I remember that it was the first time where I'd read a book that was about history but wasn't blatantly about history uh, one of the books I was kind of you know really struggling with when I was when I eventually ch- decided to choose Matilda uh, was a book about a girl who was transported from Poland to Israel during the Holocaust. So I'd read history literature in the past, but this was the first time I'd read something like an allegory, which is essentially what George Orwell insists the book is. And he also insists it's got nothing to do with history and it's just about cute little animals. But um, I remember my uh, English teacher, who I really randomly now work with in my school where I teach now, which was a really odd moment. We don't teach at the same school where I went to, but anyway, that's a that's by the by. But I remember my teacher talking through the different characters and saying, oh, Old Major, that's Lenin. Uh, Snowball is, oh my gosh, I'm going to get this wrong now. Uh, Yeah, Snowball is Trotsky. Napoleon is is Stalin. And, you know, by that stage at GCSE, I hadn't learned Russian history at all. I definitely didn't learn it until my A-levels. But I was aware of maybe some of the names. But the idea that these animals were representing these people I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm in. I'm totally in. And it's really fascinating. Again, I know that George Orwell has gone on record and insisted this has nothing to do with, you know, the developments of communism in Russia, but it totally is George Orwell. Come on, it, it totally is. And when I did go on to do uh, a bit of Russian history when I did um, my A-level, I just went straight back to this and I read it again and I totally got it. And it's not that I totally got the story because, you know, thanks to George Orwell, the story itself is pretty straightforward, but I totally got the concept of communism and I totally got all of the different things like Stalin's five-year plan is what the whole windmill project that they work on and the modernization of the farm you know the farm representing Russia farmer Jones who runs the farm representing the old aristocracy under the czar in Russia and just when you can see all of these threads coming together I was like oh my goodness I get it and I was really struggling with the concept of Russian history. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a look into it yourself. It's not the easiest at all. But it was just this amazing moment. I was like, oh, my gosh, I totally get it. And I'd really, again, I'd latched onto the characters at GCSE. And because it was taught to me so incredibly well at GCSE, as soon as we started learning about it, I was like, oh, my gosh, I know something I can connect this to. And I went straight back to it. And now... Whenever I teach, well, I teach my um, students in year nine. So they're what, about coming up to 14 years old-ish. We teach them about uh, the Cold War and we do it by introducing the concept of the ideologies of capitalism and communism. And when I teach about communism, Animal Farm is my go-to. You know, I wish I could get them to sit and read the book. Sadly, that's not a, not a possibility. But there was a, uh, I say wonderful, there were, but there was a cartoon adaptation that was done, I think, in like the early 70s. Yeah, that was kicking that. around on... You remember it? Oh, there it yeah. is. So, so, yeah, which is uh, kicking around on YouTube. And I always get them to watch it. And we teach them about the ideology beforehand, and then I get them to watch it then. And I always say after watching it, I totally get it now. 
And we can actually, when, when we talk further about communism and put it into historical context, we'll link back to, well, do you remember when this happened in Animal Farm? Do you remember what this character was like? Do you remember how um, Napoleon stayed behind his police dogs as such? You know, that is the secret police that existed in Russia that Stalin hid behind and had a reign of terror over everybody. And they get it. And I just think when I see that happening, I am totally transported back to kind of my teen years as well. I also really just loved the story of what happened to Animal Farm, apart from poor Boxer the horse, you know, that gets me every time. And even when it happens in the movie, I can't watch it, you know, I'm I'm just there. There's just certain things that, you know, little quotes from it as well, that, you know, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others, you know, just chucking those little bits in and, you know, just uh, as an adult, really, how often in life you're able to use that little kind of phraseology, you know, we're all equal, but some people are more equal than others. I also love Benjamin, the donkey. You never see a dead donkey. That always stayed with me as well, because he represented this concept of, you know, the hardworking proletariat who just does his day in and day out, day in and day out, right until that final moment. But yeah, that phrase, that quote he says, you never see a dead donkey. That always stayed with me. Because I don't think it's a coincidence that that book for years and years and years has been taught in schools because, yeah. as you say, regardless of, of uh, what George Orwell may have claimed, there's a reason why that book has been taught and continues to be taught. You mentioned uh, when we were talking about, you know, what constitutes history, at, at what point you're saying people teaching now about the war on terror mm. and, you know, 9-11, etc. Ever since the so-called war on terror was declared, I've been telling people you have to read 1984 because that is double speak from Orwell's 1984 you're having a war on terror I keep saying to people although it might have been seen at the time as a looking at what was happening in the Soviet Union you read that book that's what's happening to our society now big brother and, and everything else and so I think he he maybe he obviously wouldn't have written that about what happens in certain types of capitalism or the kind of democracies that we live in but those books are so important Because although they're kind of historical, they're telling you exactly what's happening now. That's exactly it. You know, I'm I'm ashamed to say that I've not read to completion 1984. It was one of those ones after I'd finished uh, Animal Farm and my GCSEs, I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And I don't think I could get past the first chapter when it was all about explaining new speak and old speak. And I was like, oh, no, sorry. So I think it's one that I will possibly now that I'm a little bit more mature, I think we'll, uh, we'll possibly go back into for sure. I was also wondering as well that, you know, like you said, your kids maybe don't, or you're not making them read uh, Animal Farm. I wonder if sometimes some of them, you're hoping that maybe some of them at some point, because it's quite, it's a short, it's just a novella, so it's it's quite a short, and you just say quite a simple yeah. story to follow. You'd hope that maybe yeah. some of them, you'll provoke their curiosity to go away and read it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the, I can I just be very clear, the only reason I get them to watch the movie is a purely curriculum time situation. But actually, whenever I know I'm going to talk about it, I bring my book in and I say, look, you know, this is it. And I show them, look how how thin this book is, guys. You know, I won't say that, but I'll be obvious because, you know, you know, your students who will be who who are your bookworms and everything like that. And I'll say, oh, give it a read. And I always say to them, the film is good and it'll help you understand. But the book is so much better. So I, I do I do push that as well with them for sure. Obviously, that you've got a copy of that book as well. Do you hold on to a lot of books or just books for sentimental reasons, I take it? If I've loved a book, it will stay with me for the rest of my life, for sure. You know, the the box that I got lovely Matilda out of here is full of so many well-loved books. And, you know, again, I still keep, even the ones from my childhood, I keep up on my bookshelf as well. Although, like I said, I got poor Matilda here out of a box. I don't own like a Kindle or anything like that. Uh, I don't have the app on my phone or on my tablet or anything because I just love what a book feels like. And I am, and I'm sure this will come up actually when we talk about the book I've read most recently, I am a very slow reader because I want to take in every syllable, every little bit of punctuation. Whereas my, my husband inhales books, you know, and I, I just can't, I want to take my time. I really want to kind of take in every single word. And for me, I am exactly the same. The, the, the idea of actually tangibly having this and being able to see how far I'm progressing and everything like that and being able to flick backwards and forwards. You know, I think that's something that I, I don't feel that things like Kindles and so on can really replace. I think anything that makes people read, whether it's Kindles or audiobooks or anything like that, I think is a positive thing. Yeah, but that, I agree, yeah. As you say, that 
for a lot of us, it's the it's more than just the words within it. It's, the, it's what the cover looks like. It's the feel of it. It's the exactly. you know there's just something. Uh, there's just something more special when it's something like that yeah. book is in your hand. And again, it goes. I think for me as well, if I was to be super sentimental about it, it goes back to you know the time I spent with my dad in the libraries as well. You know, um, my my dad has Alzheimer's, and you know he's uh, at a stage now where he doesn't remember who I am. Um, he recognizes me and everything, but he doesn't know who I am. And so for me, it's those memories that I'm really, really holding on to. And I'm, I'm really identifying how much of an impact, though, that even something as simple as going to a library together on a weekly basis, how big an impact that has gone on to have in my life, really. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Siobhan O'Neill. Siobhan, we're on to the third book choice, and it's actually a book that you would recommend to anyone. And this is the one I think where you, it was tough for you to choose between two. So we'll, we'll have a chat about both of them then. Just Oh, thank you so much. I, just, I thought you were going to make me choose. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't been able to choose. So yeah, that's no, I'm, not, so I'm not going to be that cruel. I know it's... it's <laughs> It's cruel enough to ask you to to try and pick one. But, so the first one that you've chosen is a novel called The Tenderness of Wolves by Steph Penny. Again, I got this originally from my local library. And it was... I hope the, cop- I hope the copy you've got isn't the local library. Oh gosh, library. this is my own copy now. Sorry, yeah, very clear. This is my <laughs> own copy now that I bought with my own money, I promise you. This is not the library's copy, I promise. Um, so it was, let me have a think. So this would have been around the time where I'd graduated from uni and I was uh, working as a uh, teaching assistant before I did my teacher training. And I was still living at home and uh, I still frequented the library there. And I was going through a phase where I loved a prize winner of a book, you know, man book a prize or this one here, even like the Costa book of the year. You know, I, I tend to avoid things like the Richard and Judy book club. You know, I'm, you know, a little bit of an award snob, you know, um, and, you know, one of the books I'll talk about later is won the Pulitzer Prize as well. So I was like, OK, if it's a prize winner, then, you know, it must be good. And I picked this up. Um, it must have been out relatively recently when I picked it up because it was on the Fast Returns a little turnstile, I think it was like a two-week read or something. And as I've just described, I'm not a fast reader. I'm not a fast reader at all. So I picked this one up and I was like, okay, you know, I've you know not got much on at the moment. I'll, I'm sure I'll be able to, you know, give it a go. And so I, I took it home and I started reading it that night. And I was like, oh God, this is really slow. How did this win a prize? Seriously. And I think I tried again for another night and I was like, no, I'm, I'm done. And I put it to one side and then... I think it was, it must have been, because I can still picture this so clearly, it must have been like a bank holiday weekend, and it was sunny, and I remember sitting outside in the garden, I'm not much of a sunbather, I've got to be honest with you, but I was sat outside in the garden, and I was like, oh, sure, I fancy reading a book, and I kind of went back up into my room, and I saw this here, I was thinking, oh gosh, I've got to, I've got to return this soon, and I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll give it another go, and I didn't move from my garden for that whole bank holiday weekend and I just absolutely consumed this book because yeah I would say this to anybody that I recommend it to it is a slow start but persevere with it because when it gets going oh my gosh it's incredible and you won't want to put it down and that's exactly what I went through and I read it in a weekend I was so proud of myself because again I'm a slow reader but I was just like, wow. And I remember returning it to the library and then purchasing the book because I was like, wow, I need this book in my life. See, you know, given the fact that you then go out and buy your copy, is it something you've reread or is it just the fact you want to have it in your shelves? Oh my gosh, yes. I've read, reread it so many times and I've lent it to lots of people as well. And, you know, in fairness, some people have been like, oh, I'm really sorry I couldn't get into it. And some people are like, yeah, it was pretty good. And I'm like, pretty good. It was amazing. And I remember for ages looking for more books by Steph Penny. And she's not written a lot at all. And there was another one. I believe it was called The Invisible Ones, I think it's called. And, I, and again, I tried to read that. And sadly, sorry, Steph, if you're, if you're listening. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it just didn't, it didn't grab me like this one. But, uh, but I think it was the nature of this story that is what got me, really. Somebody had recommended it to me. I only read it last year and I, I thought it was extraordinary. Yes. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I've, I've, met, I've rarely met people who've read it 
of their own backs, so to speak. Yeah, and it was, I mean, it's amazing to think that she, you know, it's set in Canada in the kind of mm. mid-19th century, and it's mm. so, that whole, the setting, the scenery, the landscape is so, it's so central to the, to everything that's happening in the story, but she, which I, I remember reading at the time when she'd won the prize, I think she suffers or suffered from agoraphobia. So oh, basically, she did all the research for it in the, the British Library in London. She's never been to Canada, but actually people who'd read it, who were familiar, either from there or familiar with that environment, said it was it was so well drawn. You could just, again, cliche, but you were there. You know, I, I could see every snow-covered pine tree. You know, I could hear people walking through the snow in there as well. She describes it incredibly. She really, really does. I wondered as well, just when you mentioned it, you know, you were saying right at the very start about history is not just about the facts, it's the, the people who are living it. And, and that's a historical novel. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. You know, which kind of goes to the heart of what you were saying. Yeah. And also, you know, you talked about the fact it's uh, set in Canada in the 19th century. Um, when I was at university as a, as a historian, I specialised in American history. And one of the time periods which I absolutely fell in love with was the 19th century in America. So, you know, frontier America, the expansion across the American West and the relationship between the, uh, the Native Americans and the white Americans, or lack of relationship, which is probably more accurate, you know, the interregnum period, the Civil War and so on and so forth. And so it was really amazing from having just finished my degree to picking this up and something, you know, again, that was an era I was really, really passionate about and to be able to, I always felt like I was there. And it's interesting that, again, the relationship between natives and the immigrant communities of the, this kind of frontier territory that Steph writes about, you know, just felt so familiar, again, from a historical point of view as well. Now, the other book that you're going to recommend to me and everybody else is a book called The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Albom. Some people might have heard of him as the author of Tuesdays with Murray as well. I think it's one of the ones he's kind of best known for, really. And again, I was uh, probably around the same kind of age that I was uh, reading Tenderness of Wolves when I was reading this one. I come from a faith background. I was brought up a, a Catholic as well. And, you know, as my adult life has developed, I've become less, less practicing as such. But it was really fascinating that when I recommend this to people, it always comes with an immediate caveat of, it's not a religious book. It's not about heaven per se. It's not about God and the devil and everything like that. But it's more about a reflection on life. And I am a very reflective person. And, you know, I am constantly reflecting on, you know, the experiences I've had in life and how they are shape, shaping me as a, as a human, probably more than the average person does, to be honest with you. And it was the way that Mitch writes about the uh the main character of eddie in this book who is in his 80s and this is not spoiling it for anybody because you probably tell from the from the title he dies like in the first couple of pages i kind of have a bit of a soft spot in my in my empathy heart for old lonely men and that's exactly what eddie is and when he dies he is exactly that he is old and he is lonely and he goes to his job that he has had his whole entire life at this kind of pier, which is really kind of like Coney Island in, in the States. And he does the same job of working on maintenance, even in his 80s, until literally the day he dies. Then the rest of the book is about going through, again, as the, as the title suggests, the five people you meet in heaven. And it's about five people who not have impacted your life, but you have impacted theirs. For some of the people in there, he didn't even realize who they were. It talks a lot as well about his time in in war as well and I'm racking my brains now if it was Korea or Vietnam but it's it's one of the two it's one of the two I, I totally forget now I again had learned about that as part of my degree in, in history as well and so again it was that kind of familiarity of thinking oh yes I know about this and I'd learned about also the likes of Coney Island as well and like the place that had in American culture and so again it was it was those kind of things that were latching on but I remember reading this book on the way back from Waterloo Station, back to where I, where I lived in Farnborough, I remember just tears rolling down my face because I'd really connected so much, not just with this character of Eddie, but about the concept of 
people that you have had an impact on and you don't even know it. For someone who died thinking they were insignificant to the world and actually to see how big a deal they were, it just, it just touched me so much. You know, especially at a time when I was in my early teen, not early teens, excuse me, in my early 20s, I'd left university and I was you know, starting to mold what would become, you know, what the life I've had is. And it was just to think, wow, the, the possibilities of life that lie ahead. You know, some of them were obvious, like one of them was his wife, for instance, and the love he had for his wife. Gosh, I, I can barely talk about it now without nearly crying, you know. Yeah, it just really, this is probably the one book that I think of that's had such a huge emotional connection to me, for sure. And I just kind of wanted, when I recommend it to people, I was like, I want, I don't tell them that exactly. But in my mind, I'm like thinking, I want you to have that same connection that I did. And that's why I always say straight away, it's nothing to do with religion, because I don't want people to think, oh, it's just going to be about, you know, how amazing heaven is and everything like that. It's, it's, really, it's really not. And it's so much more about reflecting on the life you've lived beforehand. And nobody is insignificant. You know, everybody has that link and that impact potentially on even people you had no idea that you have that impact on. Because the two, the two things that struck me is one is a lot of the themes seem to be, I immediately thought of it's a wonderful life. Mm. Another thing as well, and you, you said you kind of maybe are more reflective than maybe most people are. And I think the other thing I'm guessing from the lesson of the book is actually what you shouldn't do is wait until, you know, if, obviously if you believe in heaven, then for those of us that do, you believe in the concept without really knowing what it mm. is. But rather than waiting until you meet those five people, actually what you should be doing is reflecting on that now and be appreciative of that now. Because, you know, like when something happens, people either in people's own lives or some major world incident that is kind of quite catastrophic, people always say, you'll always hear people saying, you know, puts things into perspective. But actually it doesn't yeah. because within a very short space of time, people go back to doing what they were doing and not really living in the moment, but also appreciating everybody around them. And I think... Well, that, that's the thing I would think that you should do rather than don't wait until you find those five people when yeah. it's too late. I, to I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, if I can speak of my own personal experiences to what you've just been describing there. Uh, back in October 2019, I was signed off sick with Crohn's disease for the first time in my life. Um, I dealt with, you know, significant times when my illness was tough, but I'd never got to the point where I was signed off. And I wasn't signed off for a bit. I was told we don't know when you'll go back to work. It was like an indefinite sign off. And, you know, things got, you know, got really, really bad. And, you know, there were days where I didn't think that I'd make it through. And there were some days I didn't want to make it through as well. But coming through the other side of that, I realized how much my perspective on life and things like that had changed massively. And especially then eventually going back into work as well. And how like my thoughts and my feelings towards that had adapted because of that experience that I'd had, really. And it kind of sounds similar to what you've been describing. That's what definitely worked where my brain went when you were describing that there. Because that must have been difficult if you're, because obviously there's the, the physical aspect of it, but like the mm. psychological aspect of your, you know, your oh. woman and you're thinking, am I going to be able to work again? That, that yeah, must absolutely. have been a really tough thing to try and deal with. Oh, it really was. And the biggest emotion that I felt back in that October when the doctor said, honey, you're not going back to work, was guilt. And the guilt of leaving my students behind, especially those ones who are in their exam years as well, my colleagues and everything. It wasn't for myself. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm really sick. It was, oh my, I feel so bad. I, I feel so guilty. And it took me a long time to get over that. It really, really did. I don't want to sound too cliche here, but one of the big things that got me through my time was books and was reading. I was reading a new book every week, you know, to the point when, when I got to a point where I could, because to be fair, from about October to mid-January, I could barely think a minute or two ahead. But by the time I would, I had surgery and I had new treatment and things were getting better, I was back almost to my old self. And it was really interesting how I went straight to books. You know, it wasn't movies or anything like that. By that point, I'd watched my fair amount of television and movies and I couldn't watch any more. And it was books that I wanted. And it was really, really fascinating. Again, I was reading books that had been on my shelf for years that I hadn't touched. I was reading books that people sent me to help me when I was, you know, in that recuperation process as well. So it's really fascinating that when that time came, when things were getting better, and like I said, I went straight to books. 
Now, we go from a book that you would recommend or two books that you'd recommend to anyone. <laughs> we now go to a book that I couldn't pay you to read again. And uh, first of all, the, the book that you've chosen is Ian McEwan, Enduring Love. And I'm interested to see whether you still have your copy of that. <laughs> I don't I don't have it. And I, I never went out and, you know, tried to look for it or anything like that. I didn't even watch the film adaptation with Daniel Craig or anything like that. I, yeah, I, yeah, just didn't bother at all. So what was it gave you such a negative reaction then to Enduring Oh my goodness, love? okay. Um, Enduring Love is a book, again, that I uh, read as part of my education. So I did um, A-level English literature and we read it then. We must have read the whole book because a lot of our English literature classes was reading the book, let's talk about the passage and things like that. All I can remember from the book is a hot air balloon and a big ball of mozzarella cheese. That's all I can remember. When it came to preparing for the exam, I was thinking, haven't really understood what this book is about and I can't tell you anything more than that and I was like I probably should maybe start having a flick through again and I was like oh no it doesn't matter and it came to the exam and then the exam was about the appendices at the back of the book (laughs) and so I was totally screwed I was like I haven't even finished this book let alone talk about the appendices that are at the back so I just I just couldn't, I, again, I, I couldn't get into it, it sounds like, because I probably have a phrase you hear a lot, really, I'm sure when people get to the talking of that. But I just remember thinking, when it must have been whilst we were reading it in class, thinking, this is absolute drivel. Having gone from doing my GCSEs and getting to read, like, Animal Farm, for instance, and, you know, really, really getting into that, and then the first book we were encountered with was Enduring Love, and I was like, what? I just, you know, really, really, I couldn't get it, and I think, having that kind of then forced upon me and then having that experience of having to talk like blag my way through an exam about a part of the book I didn't even know existed let alone read was uh, yeah it's kind of left a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth again as somebody who loved learning and always you know strive to do incredibly well I think it's kind of stuck with me as a moment I really let myself down there he's obviously very highly regarded in terms of the literature world it's not the first time his name or one of his books has come up in this category. And so I think people, oh. if people don't really like it, I think people sometimes do have quite a, an adverse reaction. Mm. To, to, so it might be, there's no middle ground. I think people either really like him or, or they don't like him at all. Totally agree. And I, and I again, as you say, there I, I, you know, I'm aware that he is a very, very well-renowned writer, but I've read nothing else of his whatsoever. And in terms of your reading, you know, obviously partly you know the type of person you are in terms of learning and stuff when you start a book do you even if you're not enjoying it first do you take it as a challenge to try and finish it or, or are you one of those people that say right I'm not enjoying it I'll go and read something else uh yeah um, I do you know what actually I can't I can't genuinely say I'm one or the other because I've done a bit of both obviously like I said with the tenderness of wolves that was one I went back to and I stuck with it and I loved it but one that I uh, tried to read recently um, which has also been recently done into a, a TV adaptation was um, Philip Roth's Plot to Kill America. And I was just, I just so wanted to like it because I adore, and this is, this might, I know amongst the community of history teachers out there, this is not a very popular or shared opinion, but I love counterfactuals. I love what if things have been different. Like a, another book that was also close contender for this category for me was Fatherland by Robert Harris, which I absolutely loved until the final chapter, which again, I I won't talk much about. But again, I really wanted to love Philip Roth's uh, work as well. I knew again, he was really well renowned. And I think around the time I was looking into it was around the time that he passed as well. But yeah, I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't get into it. And I've, you know, always, uh, even like from a young child, as I mentioned about the girl, the the book about the girl who from, from Poland to Israel, I mean, I'd always had this historical fascination with Nazi Germany and you know, their anti-Semitic policies, which a lot of, you know, a lot of people do. And I was just like, oh, I, you know, this really sounds like my kind of book. And then I remember trying to watch the TV adaptation as well and being like, oh, this is really heavy. I, even, even for me, you know, and I'm going to talk about in a second, the book that I've read quite recently, which is incredibly heavy, but sometimes, yes, I will persevere. And I think it kind of depends on how bored I am, really, <laughs> and how much I might be procrastinating from something else as to how much I persevere. But yes, yeah, sometimes I will uh, I will just put things down. But I do also like the challenge of it. 
because I love that you know the those kind of alternative history books where, mm. I, but but I also love those books. You know that whole idea, and people do it in their life anyway. What if if I turned left instead of right? Yeah, sliding I, doors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think those things on a personal level are fascinating. Mm. And then I think the history. So the the adaptation of the the man in the high castle, I thought was brilliant. oh. Yes, love it. Absolutely. I'm not, I've never read the book, but the series, you know, yeah. if we were doing a TV show one, that would be my recommendation one for sure. That's the one where you could argue that the adaptation is better than the, the book. The book's slightly different. Yeah. Thinking about what you said about like alternative histories as well. Again, another one which I would love to have put in my recommendation uh, you column. Do, you do realise that you're just bringing them up. You are just recommending them all now, which is fine because I'm people so are listening. We're, we're just giving them a an absolute library worth of recommendations. Which yeah, I'm so sorry again. I found it so hard, but I promise. I promise. I this will be my last <laughs> one. Is um, "Life After Life" by Kate Atkinson as well, which was again a great what if scenario that is lived literally over and over and over again. Well, we are we're going to give everybody another recommendation now because we're going to talk about the last book that you read and the one you've chosen as a book by Colson Whitehead, which is "The Underground Railroad." Again, I came on my radar because um, I am on Twitter uh, as a teacher as well. And uh, sometimes I love being on Twitter as a teacher and sometimes it uh, does me in and, you know, ruins my self-esteem and so on and so forth. But uh, around the time when Amazon Prime released the TV show of uh, the Underground Railroad, I just saw lots of people commenting on it, saying a lot of them saying I couldn't get through. I, I got as far as the first 20 minutes and then I then I ditched it. And then I saw a lot of people saying, I really preferred the book a lot more. And so I thought, wow, gosh, a lot of these people are really recommending this book. I haven't got anything I'm reading at the moment. So, so let's check it out. And it was one that over a couple of months, I was kind of every night I was doing maybe a page or two. And then it got to uh, the other week when the summer holidays began and a little bit like Tenderness of Wolves, I just completely inhaled this book in the space of a couple of days. It is, again, as, as a recommendation, I would really heavily think about who I was recommending it to, because not that I'm saying people shouldn't read this book. I think people should absolutely read this book, but it is incredibly difficult to read. And the way that Colston Whitehead is so committed to not censoring the horrors of what happened on the plantations, I think is commendable the way, that, the way that he does that. But it will, if you are unaware of the true horrors of the slave trade, it will open your eyes to it massively so. Because I thought it was really clever the way he, in the book, it's like a literal underground railroad, which obviously, mm. as you say, it was, a, it was an escape network to help slaves get to freedom. There's a reference, there's almost a kind of acknowledgement of a reference to it in The Handmaid's Tale, where yes. there's the kind of similar idea of, so obviously in her book, it's a different form of slavery. It's the slavery of women within this new country of Gilead. It's interesting. There's a, a group of history teachers from the Bristol area at the moment uh, who have recently released a textbook, I actually got it in the post today, uh, which is all about approaching a teaching of the slave trade from the perspective of looking at Bristol for instance which much like Glasgow has a significant steeping of its history in the slave trade as well and again I think there's a lot of that happening I tried I tried to do it um from where I teach down in in the southeast in Basingstoke and although Basingstoke has in its past up until really the mid-1700s its significant history has been in cloth and textiles during the Industrial Revolution, the north kind of took the northern parts of our country took over from that. And so it kind of lessened. And the closest I could find to a slave trader, if you will, uh, was a guy who lives probably about an hour away from here who owned a sugar plantation in Jamaica. And in fairness, you know, thanks to the Hampshire Records Office, we were able to look at his um, some of his account books. And to be fair, he was a pretty rubbish plantation owner. He didn't, he didn't make a lot of money whatsoever in this white gold that existed. But my point is, is that again, looking at trends and developments and evolutions in history education, which really, when the Black Lives Matter movement was getting, you know, the attention it deserves, last year history as a subject really came under the spotlight and you heard a lot of people saying I was never taught that when I was at school 
again, I was thinking about the curriculum that I deliver in, in, in my school and have delivered in previous schools as well. And I was thinking, I am guilty of this as well. Not intentionally, like I am not intentionally whitewashing a curriculum or anything like that. But I have never realized that actually I had the power to be able to break away from what the curriculum wanted us to teach. This national curriculum, which was set up in the early 1980s as well, you know, is not fit for purpose for the communities that we live amongst nowadays. And it was actually really... I was going to use the word empowering, but I don't mean empowering for myself. Actually, I think it was empowering for everybody that was involved to really look at how we taught the concept of slavery and made it less into a situation of black people being victims. Don't get me wrong. We didn't shy away from the the things that they went through, but actually we saw it as an opportunity to empower the black people from the past in the role that they played, for instance, in the abolition of slavery and so on as well. So yeah, I think there's a definite, like I said, there's a definite evolution amongst history educators to stop shying away. And again, it wouldn't be the educators ourselves, it's not us as teachers who are shying away from it, but it's the people up in Westminster who haven't produced a curriculum that allows us to truly acknowledge the horrors of the past that we were involved in and to the extent we were involved in as well. One final thing that I found out about the Underground Railroad, uh, just a wee throwaway fact, apparently last year in 2020, there was a, a crater on Pluto's moon, I think it's called Charon, was named Cora after the character in the Underground Railroad. No way, that's incredible, that's incredible and well deserved as well, <laughs> well deserved as well, Cora is an incredible woman, an incredible woman for sure we're almost uh, at the end of the podcast one last thing I was going to ask as a teacher you're in the middle of the holidays and that's a time I think obviously to to rest and recharge the batteries for the demands ahead of the new term in terms of your reading are you just then looking to escape in terms of your reading and put aside almost the subject you teach so you then can go back completely refreshed in the new term I think it differs I know last year when I was going back in September after I'd been off poorly with Crohn's uh, up until April and then obviously locked down. So I hadn't been physically in a school for nearly a year. And again, it was around the time I was doing so much, so many amazing conferences on history teaching. I was so fired up. I did a lot of reading around then for things I knew I was going to be going on to teach about. And again, a lot of the new subjects that I, for instance, I talked about my year seven curriculum, like Polish history that I was reading up on and things about like the Silk Roads that I talked about a little bit as well and the Mughals and all sorts of things. So I did a lot of reading around there that was very, very factually based. And I'm finding now this summer after the year that we've had, and, you know, I'm very proud to say, you know, health-wise I was there for the whole thing. But in terms of all that we've been through, I feel I'm ready for a bit of a break. However, as you can probably tell from a lot of the books I've chosen, historical fiction is still escapism to me. And if I'm able to read something that adds to what I'm going to be able to teach or even allows me to, to recommend to students as well, then that's all the better. But I think in the context of the year that I've had and, you know, hopefully the other history teachers out there listening, um, you don't, don't hate me too much for saying this, but I'm, uh, I'm kind of ready to maybe put the the knowledge side of the books that I was reading last year, just to one side, because yeah, just, just need that bit of a break and that bit of escapism to be able to come back fresh in the, in the new year for sure. Well, as I say, sadly, we have come to the end of the podcast. I should have said right at the very start of this podcast that you, I think you have made history as the first school teacher to be on the podcast. So. Oh, thank you so much. That makes me very, very proud. And I'm sure I will be the first of many. Hopefully for all the other teachers that are listening there will now get in touch. But it has been, I have to say, I've, I've loved chatting to you about you your, your favourite and not so favourite books. Thank you so much. Me too. I've absolutely loved having this opportunity to be able to get nice and nostalgic as well. It's been really great. So Paul, thank you so, so much for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast. And I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at readallabout20, on Instagram at readallaboutitpodcast, or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. 
If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.